This week on The Take, we're marking one year since a pair of devastating earthquakes hit Turkey and Syria with a new digital interactive. Listen and watch stories of survival, recovery, and coping with the grief at aj.audio forward slash earthquakes. Again, that's aj.audio forward slash earthquakes. Al Jazeera Podcasts. There are more talks underway for a possible ceasefire in Gaza, while Israel is still bombing much of the Strip after rejecting a Hamas offer for a lengthy pause. So what's next? And when will respite come for millions of Palestinians suffering from months of bombardment? Hello, I'm Adrian Finnegan, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help to define major global stories. Right, let's bring in our guests for today's discussion. From New York, we're joined by Daniel Levy, president of the U.S. Middle East Project and a former peace negotiator for Israel. In Ramallah is Mustafa Barghouti, secretary general of the Palestinian National Initiative. And also uh, we've got in Washington, D.C., Akbar Shahid Ahmed, senior diplomatic correspondent for HuffPost, who's been reporting on the Biden administration's Gaza policy. A warm welcome to you all, gentlemen. Daniel, let's start with you. Uh, the consensus seems to be among mediators that this is the closest we've come to a ceasefire since November. Would you agree? We're obviously not there yet. Uh, how far from a meaningful deal, are we? I think the distance is still very significant. We have heard the Israeli prime minister call the um, very detailed public proposal, it's been made public by Hamas, delusional. We've seen the Secretary of State, Blinken, uh, call some of those positions non-starters. He has not used that word to describe the Israeli uh, refusal to accept any kind of ceasefire, the positions that Netanyahu has taken. So I think we're some distance away, and that is not where we should be, given the situation in Gaza, given the horrendous devastation and suffering and humanitarian crisis and civilian death and what is now awaiting Rafa. And we are not seeing, and I think we have to be clear about this, there's a lot of spin. We are not seeing the kind of leverage that America could be placing on the Israeli side to get this to end and to get this to end now, which is going to be necessary, and that is still conspicuously absent, unfortunately. So what do you think is going on behind the scenes right now? Who's, who's <clears throat> talking to who? And, 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 and who is, is, is wielding the, the axe, if you like, is, is, is pushing people in the direction they want them to go? Let's not be bamboozled by what are the, what's going on behind the scenes. I think there's a lot of transparency to this. We do know that there is Qatari and Egyptian mediation with Hamas. Hamas are not directly involved in talks, neither with the Israeli party uh, nor with the United States. There is only so much that those parties are going to be able to extract from Hamas if there is not serious movement on the Israeli side. I think what we know is that the Israeli prime minister would like to get some of the civilians out, but not at the cost of ending his devastating war on Gaza. He has been clear about that not at the cost of withdrawing the military from Gaza and not at the cost of releasing these high value, as they are called, prisoners. And without movement on those fronts, we are going to be left with the balance of forces dynamics on the battlefield where neither side is apparently feeling enough attrition and enough pressure to seriously move back from its positions or domestic pressure inside Israel 
or pressure on Israel from the outside. That is primarily, unfortunately, the United States. The United States is not a human rights organization. It is not a country that actually acts according to international law. It acts according to what it perceives to be its interests. So those interests are going to need to be impacted if the United States is going to move, including the narrow political interest of a president who is doing everything right now to not be re-elected. So the pressure there matters and the international pressure of course, South Africa's move at the ICJ still hovers above this. Feb 26th is the 30-day deadline on the provisional measures. So there is a lot more needed in terms of pressure. Mustafa Bagouti, what would a meaningful deal acceptable to all parties look like? And what do you think the chances are of, of, of getting that deal? Well, I agree that uh, the chances would be much better if the United States of America changes its position and stops opposing an immediate permanent ceasefire, allowing this atrocity in Gaza, allowing the continuation of three war crimes at the same time, the war crime of genocide, the war crime of collective punishment, and the war crime of ethnic cleansing. And uh, I do believe that uh, what, what is needed is uh, a deal. Of course, the Palestinian resistance is showing some flexibility here by accepting interim deals, that would lead to a permanent, eventually, ceasefire. And then the beginning, the initiation of exchange of prisoners. The Israelis cannot get uh, their prisoners without releasing a meaningful number of Palestinian prisoners, and especially those who are uh, serving very long terms. And uh, so, so that's, that's the possible situation. But it is unimaginable that there will be interim deals and uh, interim ceasefire, and then Israel would get all its uh, prisoners and then continue the attack on Gaza. That is unacceptable. Of course, we see here Netanyahu doing two things at the same time. Netanyahu is playing with fire, using uh, threats of initiating a major operation in Rafah, knowing very well that this would be the largest massacre in modern history. And he's using that as an instrument of pressure in the negotiations that started to happen today in Cairo. And at the same time, he's promoting his own plan, uh, which is uh, to continue this war forever, because he knows very well that an end of this war would mean an end of his uh, political life. He, he will be probably taken to prison with the four cases of corruption against him, and he will be accused of the huge failure on the 7th of October. And he is in partnership here with Gallant and other major military leaders in Israel, who will also be accused of failing even in this war. But on the, there are several factors. Internally in Israel, there is the pressure of the families of prisoners, who now know that Netanyahu is ready to kill all the Israeli prisoners. He doesn't care about their life to stay in power. But the objection to his policy is growing, and it is becoming a combination of families of prisoners demanding a ceasefire and demanding an exchange, and also a com a combination in combination with the whole uh, amount of, uh, of objection to him staying as prime minister, the, the, the calls for his removal. And there is a very interesting, a very interesting poll that appeared today showing that 51 uh, percent of the Israelis prefer and uh, give priority to bringing back the prisoners, while 37 percent are for eradicating Hamas, which Netanyahu calls for. But more than 71 percent want new elections in Israel immediately. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
Um, Akbar Shahid, I'll come to you in just a moment, but I can see Daniel nodding vigorously there. Daniel, do you want to, do you want to come in? Well, I, I think what Mustafa just reminded us of is very important, that there is this vector of pressure inside Israel of the families. Some of those released already held a press conference calling for this release. And, and, and here's where I think the U.S. administration is again going off on the wrong tangent by trying to reward Israel with this Saudi normalization. We have seen that normalization has only encouraged Israeli extremism after the normalization with the UAE and others. He should put that aside. That's, that's a, a, a pipe dream he's chasing and focus on the ceasefire, the release deal, the hostages out, the prisoners out, getting the ceasefire. That's where the vulnerability lies, rather than trying to tell everyone, oh, we're going to put together some fabulous peace process, which in effect is not only rewarding Israel, but it's trying to push everything back into the deep freeze of meanless, meaningless peace processing and an apartheid reality. Focus Akbar, on what matters right Akbar, now. Akbar, I can see you smiling. Before I ask you a specific question, do you want to come back on what you've heard so far? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think Daniel's point is a really interesting one, because Certainly, most experts, including many foreign policy officials within the U.S. government, are telling President Biden exactly what Daniel is saying, right? That ceasefire is what's important. Just leave aside this fight dream of Saudi-Israel normalization with a U.S. component. However, I just think it's important to remember these decisions are being made not necessarily from a place of consultation or strategy, right? They are being made at a very gut level by President Biden and by his closest advisors, for whom Saudi-Israel normalization somehow they are seen as not just uh, a way to deal with Gaza's pain, which is important to them, but as a way to handle their top priority, which is President Biden's re-election, they believe, they firmly believe that they will be able to sell on the campaign trail, look at me, a Middle East peacemaker. I think that's a very, very sort of contentious belief, but it is certainly what they think. Given that then, to what, to what extent is Saudi Arabia and its, and its rec recognition of Israel, its normalization with Israel, key to what happens next? It's critical. I, uh, you, you know, you mentioned earlier in the, in the show this summit right now in Riyadh of Arab foreign ministers, and I think having those conversations about a day after for Gaza, about reconstruction funding, about whether there'll be foreign troops that'll help administer Hamas, that's all important because you can't get to a day after the war unless you have some of that plan in place. However, I think a lot of the conversations right now in Washington are around who's got the leverage. And I'd say because the Biden administration so wants this deal, the Saudis certainly feel they have a lot of leverage out over Biden. Now, will they use that to get significant concessions for the Palestinians, or will they use that for their own interests? And I think that's what we still don't know. Right now, you're seeing from the U.S. administration some, some rhetorical shifts, certainly no tangible shift, near total support for Israel continues, including for a potential Rafa offensive. But you're seeing some rhetorical talk of statehood and that kind of trying to retrofit discussions of statehood now onto what they were doing before October 7th. I don't know if that will be sufficient for Palestinians. It certainly won't be sufficient for people in the U.S., whether it's voters, whether it's people inside the administration who feel this is a strategic and humanitarian disaster. Mustafa Bukhiji, you've got all this going on then in, in the corridors of power across the, the Middle East region and in Washington, D.C. Where are the Palestinians in all of this? Where is, where's their voice at, at these negotiations? Does, does Hamas speak for them all? 
No, Hamas doesn't speak on its own. Hamas has coordinated with all the political forces that are participating in resistance in Gaza. And they are the one, the side that is negotiating now with Israel through the United States of America and, uh, of course, Egypt and, and Qatar. They are the ones who have the keys. Uh, and that's why they are negotiating with them. But I want to comment on the issue of the leverage here. I don't think for Netanyahu the issue of normalization with Saudi Arabia is an, is, is, uh, is, uh, represents any kind of leverage. He said it very clearly in his last speech yesterday. He said that all the issues of normalization will be done easier if we finish this war and if we eradicate Hamas and if we reoccupy Gaza. And he wants to reoccupy Gaza. His, this is a declared game. And, uh, and uh, so the issue of normalization does not represent pressure on him. The pressures are coming from inside. The pressure is coming from the fact that Israel is having great difficulty tolerating the human losses in its attacks in Gaza. The pressure is coming from the fact that Israel is having a terrible economic situation now, on the edge of collapse, actually, because of the costs of this terrible war. Third, there is, a, the, the leverage, there is also the pressure of the international uh, pressure uh, because of the situation uh, that uh, Israel and the United States find themselves uh, in, uh, denounced by most of the world community because of this terrible aggression on, on the people of Gaza. And then there is the pressure that is coming internally from the families of prisoners. But I want to say what the United States is proposing in relation to normalization is another act of deceit. They want to repeat the same Oslo deceit. The same game. There will be a promise of some kind of movement towards some kind of a Palestinian state, and states can be of different natures, mm. and in exchange for immediate normalization with Saudi Arabia. We don't buy that, because what they mean is not a real Palestinian state. If they really meant a Palestinian state, they would be speaking about ending occupation immediately. They would be speaking at least about immediate, complete, total freeze of all settlement activities and removal of settlements. They would be speaking about a Palestinian state that is viable on all the Palestinian land that is occupied, including East Jerusalem. But they're not going to do any of that. They just give you a slogan, and in exchange for that slogan, they want normalization with Saudi Arabia, which will be used as an instrument to serve Netanyahu's okay. strategy okay. of liquidating the Palestinian issue. All right, let's let's, let's give Daniel a, a chance to pick up on that, on, on that, particularly you know whether anyone believes uh, that the U.S. is is really serious about ending the atrocities in Gaza and is willing to, to, to pressure Israel. And also picking up on what Mustafa was saying there about the importance of, of the internal dynamics of Israeli politics in all of this. It's so important what Mustafa just shared with us because I don't know how much to attribute to American naivety. Uh, of course, America never understood what it was doing when it was in Iraq and Afghanistan. You'd think in a country with such dense relations with the US, like Israel, they would understand. So is it naivety or is it complicity and a pernicious approach? Because the idea that you can corner Benjamin Netanyahu, that you can corner Benjamin Netanyahu with this uh, normalization with Saudi and Mr. Netanyahu, if you don't agree to it, your public are going to turn against you. Benjamin Netanyahu will turn to the Israeli public and say, of course, I've got normalization deals where I paid nothing in the past. I will get them in the future. This matters. 
But these guys who are pushing this deal are asking us to make concessions that we must never make. Trust me, I'll get it in the future. The Israeli public, in this instance, will believe Netanyahu, not the Americans. Now, when it comes to the question of getting the hostages out, here is where the Israeli public will say, are you really doing enough? And if there is pressure on that front, you can get a ceasefire. And that should tell us that the priority for the United States is not ending the atrocities in Gaza. It's getting some kind of geopolitical win. Mustafa has suggested that it would also be a domestic political win. I think what they're even more interested in is stopping this Saudi hedge towards China, pulling Saudi back more into the American orbit, getting this um, defense alliance, the civilian nuclear program that perhaps could be American companies, uh, decelerating the de-dollarization. But to sell that to Americans, they need to wrap it up as we're making peace with Israel. So that's what's going on okay. on that front. It is a deceit. Right. And if you were serious about um, wanting to end the war in Gaza, you, you don't do what America's doing now. You don't carry on providing the weapons. You don't carry on providing the diplomatic political cover. You okay. don't defund UNRWA. Yeah. And you look at that Feb 26th date at the ICJ and you say, how can we leverage and use that? And so that tells us, unfortunately, where the administration is still at. Mm. Okay. Uh, Akbar, uh, what, would a, what would a deal, whatever that deal may look like, mean for Iran and its proxies? Absolutely. I'll just, uh, before I get into that, respond to something that was first said, I, I thought it was very important. Those steps that he was talking about, right, that Palestinians really want to see from this deal, recognition of East Jerusalem, ending settlements, we are nowhere near that, right? Those conversations are not happening at the State Department. Those conversations are not happening at the White House of going that far. What you've seen is kind of window dressing like moves like this executive order Biden has issued. If they can demonstrate we're actually going to be serious, that might start to win some good faith, but that isn't there right now. In terms of Iran, I think we're unfortunately at an extremely dangerous place. The Biden administration came in with the Iran nuclear deal in tatters, and instead of rebuilding that deal, kind of abandoned that effort, uh, with the result that now we are looking at a few months before a presidential election where many experts and some folks inside government are quite worried you could see an escalation over the summer, right? You've already seen the U.S. and Iran kind of butting heads in a range of arenas. Uh, you know, it's debatable to what extent Iran is directing actions in, in Yemen, Iraq, Syria, but certainly the U.S. is putting out the narrative of we are confronting Iran. Now, if President Biden gets caught in this very dangerous and unfortunately quite predictable spiral of American escalation without a clear plan, or if the Iranians misread the American political situation and feel they need to escalate, we could be on the brink of a major regional war. And I think many people are worried we're headed that way without a clear plan in place to ratchet down tensions. And, and just with all the talks you've been talking about, Iran is nowhere. Right, It's not at the table in these deals on Gaza's future. It's not at the table on normalization. And it is a major factor, right? As one, one US official put it to me, Iran and its network are the spoilers, right? If they don't like these deals, they can make them go away. So I think a lot of plans are being made right now without full acknowledgement of reality. Mustafa Barghouti, would, would you uh, agree with that? That, that, that OK, we, negotiations may be maybe ongoing at the moment to, to reach some sort of settlement, but we're still at a very, very dangerous moment for the region. Absolutely. Netanyahu can, can very soon not only continue this terrible war, but also initiate another massive war with Lebanon. 
And he's very happy with all these strikes that are happening around and this, these clashes that uh, the Americans and British uh, air forces are attacking Yemen, attacking Syria, attacking Iraq. I mean, he's very happy. I mean, he would like, love to see even a full war between Iran and the United States. Mm. And what is really amazing is that although Netanyahu yesterday insulted the United States on more than one issue regarding the possibility of a deal, regarding the possibility of negotiations, but also about the American stand on the issue of settlements, although it's very weak, he still insulted them. And regardless of all of that, Mr. Blinken is, 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 is really initiating and supporting the same strategy that Israel does, trying in his, in his press conference in Doha, all he talked about are the proxies of Iran and this, the fight with Iran, mm -hmm. and they are trying to marginalize the Palestinian okay, issue and okay. make it look like it's a fight between right. Israel and America. And, and Iran. That, okay. that is, of course, uh, totally wrong. And, and no, one, one last point. I am not yeah, sure quickly. that Blinken cares anymore mm. about the re-election of his president mm. by mm. this involvement in this terrible aggression. OK, I'm sorry to cut you short. We're, we're very uh, tight on time here. Daniel, the, the last word to you. I've got about 30, 40 seconds here. Uh, I mean, if you had the ear of President Biden, if you were advising Pre uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, what, what would your advice to them be right now? I wouldn't even try to make that case. What I would be saying it's to a much broader audience. It all feels so inadequate, but don't give up. Don't give in to despair and frustration and hopelessness. You never know when that tipping point is, that protest, that reaching out to, to a, an elected official, that scream from the public to put pressure on those leaders. That's where we mustn't give up hope. Biden and Netanyahu will be influenced by the environments in which they operate. And what people can do is impact those environments. Gentlemen, there, we must end it. Many thanks to you all. Daniel Levy, uh, Mustafa Baghouti, and Akbar Shahid Ahmed. This episode was produced by Dermot Fleming, Imogen Kimber, Veronica Pedroza, and Jimmy Getterhoon. Studio signed was by uh, Fadzil Yacha. The program was edited by Alexander Otisevich, Lyndon Guyan, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. And thanks for listening. Tune in again on Friday for our next edition. Coming up in the take, as Antony Blinken concludes his Middle East trip, how much progress has the U.S. made? That's The Take by Al Jazeera. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.